The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 24th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And two Republican-led congressional committees, which is to say congressional committees, that's who controls Congress, the House Intelligence Committee and the House Oversight Committee, will be looking into a deal with the Russians that possibly had a profound effect on American policies and politics. Wait, the election? No, no, no. The Clinton Foundation uranium deal, which wasn't even with the Clinton Foundation. Yeah, we're going to crack the uranium deal that went down in 2009. Guys, you sure the teapot dome scandals totally solved? What about the XYZ affair? And there's still some eyes to be dotted there. So the deal with the uranium deal stems from a book written by Peter Schweizer, who's a Breitbart or was a Breitbart news editor. And uh, the facts are this. There was a guy, he owned U.S. uranium mines that accounted for 20% of uranium capacity, though actually 11% of the uranium produced. And that guy gave money to the Clinton Foundation. He then sold his company to another company, and that company sold itself to the Russians. So now a Russian company owns a U.S. company that can mine uranium in the United States. There is still a law against exporting any uranium to Russia. And the deal was approved by the U.S. government. The following entities approved of the deal. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Utah Nuclear Regulator, the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, the Secretaries of the Treasury, Defense, Commerce, Energy, Homeland Security, and the head of the U.S. Trade Representative and the Office of Science and Technology. But did you notice I mentioned Secretary of State? Well, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State one of the people and entities who approved the deal. And like I said, the uranium owner who got wealthy when the Russians eventually bought his company did give donations to the Clinton Foundation. Why wasn't this deal rejected? It just wasn't a big deal. It doesn't really affect anything. No one's even proved or even asserted, and it's really easy to assert, that any of the uranium from those Utah mines ever wound up anywhere near a Russian reactor or missile. It did wind up near a Russian underreactor, Mr. Devin Nunez, chair of the House Intel Committee. Now, he recused himself on matters related to Russian interference in the election, but maybe because he finds himself with all this free time, he's looking at Russian interference in atomic element number 92. Look, Trey Gowdy, who's the chair of the Oversight Committee, also looking into the uranium deal, held the Benghazi hearings and The upshot of all that was they cleared Hillary Clinton, or at least the majority report said there's no evidence of wrongdoing. The entire investigation certainly bloodied Hillary Clinton electorally. Perhaps the right believes that Hillary Clinton is still running for president. Seems that Fox News believes that. And I do remember at the time, Chairman Gowdy urged all Americans to read the committee's 800-page report. I guess I am a bad citizen. I did not read it. And I doubt I will read whatever report comes out of the uranium investigation either. All I'm going to read is the writing on the wall. I think you could see it too. Right there. You see the writing. It's right next to where the House Republicans have flung up some other stuff to see what sticks. On the show today, I spiel about lying, but lying outside the name it and shame it culture of our times. But first, what a ranking of the world's top CEOs tell us about the state of the world. Here's a hint. Jeff Bezos would be number one, but Amazon's a little too mean. The editor of Harvard Business Review is up next.
days when a CEO is in the news, the regular mainstream news news, not the business news. I find it's more often for ill than good. There was a time when that was the opposite, when CEOs were uh, broad pirates and we all looked up to them for their slashing ways. But yes, now Jeff Bezos will decide which city he wants to dance with and they're all uh, making their batted eyelashes at Amazon. But usually it's a Harvey Weinstein or a Travis Kalanick or some sort of uh, maniac going too far. Harvard Business Review, once again, however, is putting all that aside and just getting empirical on our collective ass as it rates the best CEOs in the world, the best performing CEOs, ranks the 100 best from the best companies, the best people who head these companies. And the best person to talk about this is Adi Ignatius. He is the editor-in-chief of Harvard Business Review. Welcome back, Adi. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Now, before we get to who's number one, you were here last year talking about this list, and uh, Dane, the Lars from Novo Nordisk, was up there. Where did he go? Uh, well, he lost his job. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fickle business. So he was number one in your rankings. Yes. But- not in the uh, hearts of Novo Nordisk shareholders. So just to say, so the ranking, you know, this is not our sense of who is on the rise. Right. It is not anecdotal about a, you know a, a man or woman we think is great. It's it's there's a formula. Formula spits it out. He had a great run. He had a great run, and, and we then look it at, came to a head. Well, it came to an end. But we look at two things. We look at total shareholder return, and that's very objective and clear. And going all the way back to when a CEO starts his or her career. So this is a long term thing. But then we also add on what's called ESG data, environmental, social, governance, and that kind of holds these leaders to the fire in terms of okay, you're making money, but are you doing the right thing in terms of the climate, in terms of governance, in terms of you know, social outreach in terms of lobbying or not lobbying. So hopefully it's a comprehensive list that reflects a lot of things. It's 80% financial return though, right? Correct. But but weighting 20% ESG can change things dramatically. And the most dramatic example, if this was just total shareholder return, yeah. Jeff Bezos of Amazon would be your number one CEO. Factoring in ESG at 20% kicks him down to, I think, number 71. Right. Which which means that he's, he does really poorly. I mean, for that 20% to drag you down to that degree, Amazon has to do pretty poorly by those metrics. Yeah. Now we don't we don't do the ranking ourselves. We rely on a couple of outside. And what people. is called like Surveylytics? Yes, yeah, Sustainalytics. Sustainalytics. Is one of the yes. And you know, investors and hedge funds, you know, they use Sustainalytics. They use uh, BSR Hub. That's our other partner. Mm-hmm. They, they care about this data because they know investors care, and they think it says something about a company other than the traditional metrics they have. The number one CEO on your list this year is a guy who's been, I think, in the top five in past years, but who is it? He has. He was He was uh, in the top three last year. Pablo Isla, head Spanish company Inditex. People know it. It's the Zara uh, fashion brand. It's funny. He's not sort of top, you know, top tier. You know, you look at the numbers. He's not on the absolute top in terms of financial, not on the absolute top in terms of the ESG. The company sort of gets it close enough on both. You put that right. together and, you know. He's exemplary. Does he exemplify a trend? Does he is he doing something in common with all the top performers here? Well, I guess one trend is I think eight of the top ten CEOs on the list are from Europe, mm-hmm. and I think that's partly because European governments demand responsibility, demand attention to some of these ESG things, whether it's... But it doesn't hurt their return on investment. No, it doesn't. So diversity on boards, things like that, that are just mandated as opposed to Mm -hmm. more optional in the U.S. So that helps. Is there any evidence that being on your list has prompted any real-world behavior from CEOs? Like, hey, let's boost up this ESG score to get on the list? 
none concrete. I mean, I mean, why do we do this? I mean, we do this in part because I'll ask these are questions here, Adi. Why do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a really good question. There's certain values that are sort of bedrock to us, and the ESG stuff fits in that. We're not just about how to make a a, a wheelbarrow full of money. We're about right. how to build a long term institution. So we think by having a list like this that includes this data that, that maybe it will move people. No one's told us, well, we cleaned up our game to try to game your list. On the other hand, you know, Bezos has, is doing better on the ESG rating and, and sort of moving up the overall list. So who knows? Maybe there's an effect. So your list, your your basis for who you're looking at is 1,200 CEOs of, is it called the S&P 1,200? Uh, exactly. Okay. So there's we know the S and P five hundred and one thousand, and then there's a Europe S and P three fifty, or so I guess you add them all together and you get an S and P twelve hundred. But of them, and the reason I'm bringing this up is so that's the base. I look back at the 2015 list. Very first comment from a listener is, I think only one woman on this list worthless. And so out of curiosity, I went back to look to see how many women you are choosing from, how many are in this S and P twelve hundred. And it's less than 100. Yeah. And look, I mean, the biggest disappointment every year to me is that there's so few women on the list. There are exactly two on the top 100. There are people who have said, look, I don't know what you're measuring, but it's got to be the wrong thing if you're only producing two women. I'm sympathetic to that question. But as you say, this is it's not that our formula is, is somehow judging women more harshly than men is that this is representative of the, you know, sort of sorry state of, of how few women there are in CEO positions around the world. And so you're desirous to have a list that's empirical, but also as reflective of uh, the broad swath of CEOs as you can have. I'm sure everyone is on board with this is called the leading question. I'm sure everyone is on board with your methodology and what you're trying to do, Adi. Uh, well, that's kind of a leading question. <laughs> um, I'll ask the leading question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so uh, so here's actually something sort of interesting. So last year, I anticipated blowback because there's so few women. Sure. And the editor's had letter- had uh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So the editor's letter I wrote, I think the headline was, where are all the women? And I said something that I didn't think was very original or even very controversial, but it said, look, there's clearly cognitive bias going on, that when companies are replacing CEOs, they're replacing them with people who, quote unquote, look like CEOs, and they tend to be men, and they tend to be white men, and they tend to be old white men, and you know, women are not sort of being part of the equation. And I said, we have to do better. Again, I didn't think this was original or controversial. So this time, I get a death threat, a letter from a very angry person who starts out saying, Dear Mr. Ignatius, isn't the internet a great thing? Thanks to the internet, I know where you live. I know the names of your children. I know the kind of car you drive. And I'm going to come to Boston and mess you up because of your stupid editorial. Did it ever occur to you there aren't more women on the list because they're just no good? Mm. No, of course not, because you're a jerk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was signed, you know, a, a an arm, former army ranger uh, who's heavily armed with connections up the wazoo. So it's hard. So it's, there was your leading question. It No, not everyone likes the, the list. He, I mean, he does make an excellent point for masculinity, though, I got to say. He really won that argument. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people signed up to be men after that. <laughs> I want to ask ask you about a an, an HBR uh, Harvard Business Review story that I just heard about, but you printed last year, a few months ago. And I heard an interview with the Harvard professor who did this study, and it's called Why Diversity Programs Fail. And I thought it would be, oh, here's the best practices, here's uh, some pitfalls. But it's not that. Again, it's very empirical. It looked at all the businesses that had diversity programs and expressed a desire to diversify and put in action a program to achieve that. 
And it turns out they just weren't achieving diversity. You know, can you summarize what this finding was? Because I thought it should get a little more attention. Yeah, I mean, look, they looked at the stats and said all these companies have these really well-intentioned programs, you know, diversity training, mandatory diversity training, you know, grievance procedures, you know, regulating hiring and promotion decisions, all put in place to try to help solve the lack of diversity. And they all seem to backfire. So that's, you know, those are the indisputable facts. And, you know, a lot of what they think is that these programs... They're sort of remedial. They kind of cast blame. They take managers out of the process and that it's human nature to resist. So if, if, if the HR department says you have to do X, a lot of managers are going to be inclined to, to do Y. That it's just, it's a, it's a sort of basic approach. What you want... Yeah, mandatory, for instance, mandatory diversity training gets much worse results than voluntary diversity exactly. training. And, and what you want is, you know, you want managers to have a sense of, you know, you want managers to say, yeah, I'd like to go to a college recruitment program for, you know, whatever it is, diverse candidates or something like that. You know, you go and you go on your own and you're there. Suddenly you're invested and you're meeting people and you're meeting really great people and you become their champions. Similarly, if you have a, a mentorship program, not forced, but, but you encourage it to happen. You know, if you have somebody who is your mentee, you become an advocate for that person. You're invested. So some of it is sort of the basic psychology of how to get people to become champions of the programs you think matter. The people still doing most of the hiring are white people. And they're, you know, these professors lay out that there's at least some feeling of resentment how diversity is explained to them or taught to them or impressed upon them. I mean, look, you talk about hiring. We ran a, a separate piece that, that was quite incredible that basically showed if you're, if you're filling a job, if you have four candidates and only one is a woman, yeah. there's pretty much 0% chance that she will be hired. That it is absolutely a requirement to have two women or two diverse candidates, whatever, for you to even consider hiring one. There's something that goes on that is just the statistics bear out. That having Why? A single, the, feeling is being, the feeling of the hiring people is that, that per, the candidate's being thrust upon me? Well, or, or that, or that it confirms that the, the the three out of four confirms something that you know what uh -huh. what what the ideal candidate looks like. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what it is, but the numbers are clear. You have got to work hard to bring up candidates, or it's not going to happen. Do you know if this is uh, since uh, Harvard Business Review uh, ran this study? If it changed anything, are people looking at this anew? Well, so the fact that you heard a radio slot on it, which actually wasn't us well, um, I recently. To, I means, listen, well, I listened. No, I listened to HBR and Sirius Radio. Yeah. Or, yeah, uh, it was to, you. You listened to Wharton. Yeah. On oh, that's Sirius. it. Oh, I listened <laughs> and to And that Wharton. is what it was. So yeah, that's, yeah. So, but that's great. So, so Dobbin was on the Wharton broadcast. So, you know, so yes, it's continuing. This, this award, so we have a panel of judges that rates the best article on HBR all year. This won it. Oh, wow. And we, you know, Put push it out again and got attention. The award is called the HBR McKinsey Award. McKinsey pushed it out, interviewed Dobbins. So, yeah, we're we're trying to give this a second life, a third life. It it's hard to you know see immediate impact for articles. Hopefully, it's real and and has a long tail. So your magazine gives itself an award for the best article of the year. <laughs> is that what's going on? That's a great idea. Uh, feel free to uh, use well, I know it. that all other magazines compete for the Ellie's or the national magazines. I think Slate could 
clean up the Sladies. <laughs> so yes, we have won the HBR McKenzie Award every year since it was introduced. We're very proud of that. No, you know, it's just a way. It's a way to. Uh, it's a. It's a way to. You know, I mean, our stuff is supposed to be. You know, it's all interesting, but certain things rise above the pack in terms of rigor, in terms of relevance, and just a, an opportunity. And we have judges. We don't do it ourselves. We have outside judges who do that. But yeah, yeah. McKenzie consultants. Yeah, I know. I no, know it's not McKenzie. It's not McKenzie. <laughs> it's a very impressive panel of CEOs and consultants and academics. Academics and uh, and they're great and they uh, they read every article and and edit, and judge it really sincerely in that one. Addy Ignatius is the editor in chief of the Harvard Business Review and the six time Addy Award winner. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Hi, this is Mike Pesca. And before we get to today's spiel, I want to give a note about structure. I've diagrammed the layout of this spiel, and it is discursive, bordering on chaotic. There are thoughts within thoughts, theses presented, abandoned, and then returned to. I just want you to know it winds up being about Donald Trump's chances of passing tax reform. Keep that in mind. might not seem like it, but we get there. Here now, will Donald Trump pass tax reform a spielic journey through the generations. Do you have any free speech strictures in your household? Words or phrases you don't allow the kids to say? Not slurs, we're all against those, but broad proscriptions on otherwise inoffensive content. Controlling utterances to better allow for functionality and the promotion of the common good. In my house, we have an off-limits phrase. It's this one. That's not fair. Minus one Pesca point if you say that's not fair. What? Oh, Pesca points. Pesca points are accrued for exemplary acts and can be redeemed for goods and services. One Pesca point roughly equals $1, but Pesca points can also be redeemed for experiences not available in retail stores. For instance, sleeping on the pullout sofa. I have no idea why kids think this is fun, but they think it's fun. Sleeping on the pullout sofa can be redeemed for three Pesca points. Anyway, that's not fair. That'll lose you some Pesca points right there. I skip right past the tried and 100% ineffective, no one said life's fair. I was never moved by that argument as a kid. You probably weren't either. Perhaps it's good to share it as a collective cultural experience that we all felt independent from each other. And then later in life, you realize, hey, my parents said that too. Which, by the way, it's like why reading a book and then realizing someone else has read that book is a bonding experience, but seeing a big budget movie isn't. The idea of independently experiencing this and then coming together and realizing you have it in common with someone. Anyway... I never used life's not fair. I did try saying, you know, fair doesn't necessarily mean equal. I picked up that advice somewhere. That makes a point. Maybe they'll take that point with them through life. But it didn't stop the complaints in the moment. That's not fair. So I just made a rule. Look, in this house, we just don't say that's not fair. That's the one thing we don't say. I mean, there are other words, but that's the sentence you think it might be okay to say, or we could debate if it's fair or not. No, I have a draconian rule. And there are costs and consequences. I mean, you could wipe down the entire dining room table without being asked to, and that'll earn you a Pesca point. And then you just say, that's not fair. And then you lose that very same Pesca point. Consequences. So what this has done, it is curtailed the use of that's not fair. It's worked. I think it really highlights my objection to that term and that term alone. I don't have any other rules about any other phrases. I don't have 
set in stone punishments about anything else they might say. Now, in other people's houses, the phrase or word could change. And today we learned in the Corker house, they were raised to do their chores, respect their elders, respect their Lord, and not to use a certain word. We grew up in our family not using the L word. You're a Corker. Using the L word, that's not what a corker does. And it's been that way since your great-great-great-grandfather, Cornelius Corky Corker, first landed on these shores on the Mayflower. Dad, that never happened. You're a serial fabricator. You're engaging in... Provable untruths. But of course, the man Senator Corker was referring to wasn't a long-ago corker. It was our corker of a president. A president today, tomorrow, and possibly for the next three to eight years. Now, I'm sure Bob Corker thought that his massive repository of synonyms for the word liar wouldn't come into play so much as an adult. Definitely not once he ascended to the heights of the U.S. Senate with its collegiality and its decorum. Then came Trump, that, well, that habitual prevaricator. World leaders are very aware that um, much of what he says is untrue, uh, provably untrue. I mean, just they're just factually incorrect. The lies, sorry, Corker, the deviations from the nonfictional that set Corker off were an early morning Trump tweet, quote, Bob Corker, who helped President O give us the bad Iran deal and couldn't get elected dog catcher in Tennessee, is now fighting tax cuts, dot, 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 dot. Corker dropped out of the race in Tennessee when I refused to endorse him and now is only negative on anything Trump. Look at his record. One of those assertions is an unknowable forecast. He couldn't get elected dog catcher. Actually, I'm going to rate that as true. Dog catcher is not on the ballot on Tennessee or any other state. I looked it up. However, Corker says Trump promised to endorse him time after time again. That seems to have been the case, but we can't really call that a lie. It's not demonstrable. But the Iran allegation? What Trump is saying is 180 degrees from the truth. Call that what you will. Corker was a committed opponent to the Iran deal. He favored a resolution of disapproval of the deal, saying at the time that this resolution of disapproval, quote, opens the door for the next president to look at this in a very different way. And that's exactly what the next president did. That president. Who's this president? The president sniping at Bob Corker. Here is Senator Corker in 2015 talking about his disapproval of the Iran deal on the floor of the Senate. What we really did was said, Mr. President, no. You cannot go forward with this deal until we have all of the information, both classified and unclassified. And by the way, let me just say that had the president held to what he said on the front end, which was we were going to end Iran's nuclear program, what we'd be having today is, again, almost unanimous support for this agreement. But instead, they squandered that opportunity, squandered it. So Bob Corker who is in full possession of the actual facts of what Bob Corker did and said, just finds it very difficult to square the president's statements with the stuff that Bob Corker actually did or said. The president uh, has great difficulty with the truth on many issues. Later in the day, the senator from the state which prosecuted John T. Scopes weighed in on President Trump with a positively Darwinistic perspective. You know, look, I've had private meetings with him, uh, dinners with him, I played golf with him. I've had you know, multiple occasions where the staff has asked me to please intervene. He was getting ready to do something that was really off the tracks. And, 
And uh, look, I, I've seen no evolution in an upward way. I mean, he's a matter of fact, I would say um, it appears to me that um, it's almost devolving. But uh, And that is why we're discussing lies without saying lies or with saying debasement and devolution, de-evolution. That's what it all comes down to. Tax cuts. Tax cuts? Yeah. Corker, though retiring, is a powerful force in the Senate. Or even if he's a totally unpowerful force, he still represents one half of the allowable Republican senatorial defections on any piece of legislation. Any plan will die if two senators, in addition to Corker, won't join in on the plan. It could be Jeff Flake, who Trump antagonized, or John McCain, who Trump antagonized, or Rand Paul, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, who Trump antagonized. I could maybe more efficiently go through those he didn't antagonize. Okay, let's see. Luther Strange, he's there for a couple more days. Anyway, the truth is some version of Trump's tax cuts are going to pass. They're the bedrock of Republican politics. But what those cuts are, the scope and ambition of them, and the question of whether they add up to garden variety rate decreases or some sweeping overhaul that Trump touts and that Gary Cohen sold his soul for, it very much depends on President Trump's ability to cajole, placate, compliment, or just manage 52 Republican senators. The phrase that comes to mind is charm offensive, only half of which has the president demonstrated an ability to deliver. That's it for today's show. Just producer Dan Schrader won the GIST Award for Schraderist Gister, as decided by the Dan Schrader Society for a more verdant future. He also won the Man Booker Prize. But the Woman Booker Prize was won by Mary Wilson, just producer. She also won the Mary Wilson Award for Wilsoning in the face of overwhelming merriness. Steve Lichtai is the three-time winner of the Lichtai Prize, given each year to the most promising executive producer of Slate Podcasts under the age of 42, then 43, then 44. The gist. You know, it is just an honor to be nominated for a gisty. And the winner is... God damn, it's 99% invisible. Faithless electors. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.